welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And before we get started with our episode today, I just wanted to let all of our listeners know, sometimes I know not everybody listens to the parlor or listens all the way through to the end. So instead of including this piece of information there, I'm going to include it here up front at the beginning. And that is that we have scheduled an episode with Julianne Long. She is going Woo-hoo! to come join us on the show and we would love to get your questions. So if you would like to submit a question for Julianne Long about Penny Royal Green, about the Palace of Rogues, about writing, about anything uh, that she may have knowledge of, (laughs) um, then go ahead and submit your questions to bit.ly slash J-A-L questions. That's Julie Ann Long, but just her initials, questions, and we'll have that link in the show notes. We already have a couple because we sent out this link to our subscribers, and they're great, and we can't wait for more. Yes, submit those questions. We're so excited to talk to her. She's been a supporter for a very long time. We read her entire Penny Royal Green series, and we cannot wait to talk to her more. However, today we are talking about a different long series. And we're not talking about the whole thing. We're starting at number six. (laughs) Yes. Number six in at least 10, but I think, I mean, there's definitely going to be at least 12 because there are 12 survivors in the Survivors series. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about number six in the Survivors series, which is A Duke a Dozen by Shanna Gallen. And we do have an author fact this week because we have not yet read a book by Shanna Gallen, so we are going to bring you her bio. (laughs) Um, And it reads, Shanna Gallen is the best-selling author of fast-paced, adventurous Regency historicals, including the RT reviewer's choice, The Making of a Gentleman. Booklist says, quote, Gallen expertly entwines espionage-flavored intrigue with sizzling passion, and RT book reviews calls her a, quote, grand mistress of the action-adventure subgenre. She taught English at the middle and high school level off and on for 11 years. Most of those years were spent working in Houston's inner city. Now, she writes full-time. She's happily married and has a daughter who is most definitely a romance heroine in the making. Aw, I really like that as I have a daughter who I hope is a romance heroine in the making or just, you know, the hero of her own story in the making. There you go. Perfect. So today we also have a history fact and it's a bit of a longer one. We will include the link to the full article because it is from sciencemuseum.org. It's not off Wikipedia. (laughs) I got a real article for you guys. All right. So um, we talk about a little bit of a sanitarium in this book, so I wanted to give us a little bit of facts. So the Victorian Mental Asylum has the reputation of a place of misery where inmates were locked up and left to the mercy of their keepers. But when the first large asylums were built in the early 1800s, they were part of a new, more humane attitude towards mental health care. The Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum at Hanwell on the outskirts of London was one of the first of the new state asylums, and it set many of the standards for mental health care in the Victorian age. Around the beginning of the 1800s, reformers such as Harriet Martineau and Samuel Took spearheaded a change in attitude towards mental health care. For the first time, local authorities had a legal responsibility for the care of mentally ill people in purpose-built accommodation. 
The shift in emphasis from custody to cure of mentally ill people resulted in a flurry of legislation. Mental illness was recognized as something that might be cured or at least alleviated. It was no longer acceptable to keep poor, mentally ill people in workhouses and prisons, so state provision of asylums became mandatory. There was unprecedented program of building asylums based on the latest scientific and medical knowledge about mental illness. The moral treatment system was a new approach to mental health care that influenced many of the reforms of the 1800s. The system aimed to treat people with mental illness like rational beings. Towards the end of the 1700s, William Tuke founded a private mental institution outside York called The Retreat. It was here that the development of moral treatment and non-restraint policy and public asylums began. Although many of William's techniques already existed, it wasn't until his grandson, Samuel Tuke, unified them into a system, which he outlined in his book, A Description of The Retreat that the moral treatment was popularized. William and Samuel believed that patients benefited from being treated as ordinary people. They were expected to dine at the table, make polite conversation over tea, and do regular chores. The role of the alienist, psychiatrist, was to encourage rational behavior. The system relied on rules and constant supervision enforced by simple rewards and punishments. Physical restraints could be used to modify behavior if used sparingly as punishments or deterrence. In traditional asylums, patients were mixed together in the same ward, but the Tukes tried to tailor treatment to each patient and house patients with similar conditions together. That's super interesting. I mean, there's just, there's so much going on in the Victorian age. Like it's, there's so much development in like thinking and science and just change, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. just like, you know, all of the industrial revolution stuff, but also like the scientific things. And it's just, I don't know, it's everything's changing. It's a really fascinating time period. It really is. And I will say I was, you know, without giving any spoilers away yet, um, I was very intrigued by this because when we talk about where they're ending up into a sanitarium or like someone being sent away. I thought we were going to be ending up in squalid conditions or something disastrous was going to happen. And it turns out, nope, everything was grand. And so I wanted to look a little bit more into that Uh because we only read the horror stories and it's usually used as, as a place of discontent, as a place of misery. Or a threat. Or a threat. And yet... This was for someone who had developmental delays was actually a place of sanctuary yeah. where they could live a comfortable life and and have people who really knew how to care for them better than a lot of the people of the age. Exactly. And so this was a pleasant surprise in this book. And so I wanted to share a little bit more information. I was curious. <laughs> That's fabulous. I'm so glad it was a pleasant surprise for you. I also found it a pleasant surprise, and I can't wait to talk about more. So let's get moving forward. So our main trope today is age gap. Yep. A big one. Pretty much the main trope. (laughs) He is 32, and she is 47. So, not even just a slight one. That's a pretty solid gap. 15 years, and yes, older woman. (laughs) Today, our main characters are Phineas Leopold Duncombe, Ninth Duke of Maine, and Annabelle, Countess of Longstow. They do not give her last name. I love it. They don't. They don't. You're totally right. I saw that you only put Annabelle, and I was like, "Mm, yeah. I mean, because I just read this book for a second time today, or yesterday Mm -hmm. and today. Um, But uh, yeah, I realized they did. They did. They don't give her a last name, but nope. 
we get lots and lots about her. So I do want to mention before we get into our synopsis that there are a few trigger warnings for this book and probably the synopsis as well. So those trigger warnings are for spousal abuse, sexual abuse, sexual trauma, and emotional abuse. So I think that uh, that pretty much sums it up. There's there's some heavy themes uh, in our countess's past, uh, but they are are brought up and dealt with in this book. They are. And I will say the synopsis talks about them, but doesn't deal with them very heavily. However, if you do decide to read the book, just be forewarned. Absolutely. So, Kelsey, shall we take it away? We shall. Phineas Duncombe is the newly minted Duke of Maine. He never expected to inherit the dukedom, seeing as he was a fifth son. However, it seems all his idiot brothers had managed to die shortly after inheriting the title. The most recent brother, Finn had been doing his darndest to protect, and yet he still managed to fall from his horse and hit his head, dying instantly. Now Finn has decided to pay a call to the wanton widow, with whom Richard, his late brother, supposedly spent his last evening alive with. He also cannot deny that he was instantly attracted to the wanton widow, also known as Lady Longstow, when he saw her with his brother at a ball. But since his brother had staked his claim, he had been trying to put her out of his head. He arrives at her doorstep and is met by a crotchety old butler and a very small housekeeper named Mrs. Slightly. She is chatty and instantly shows him into the parlor and goes to get Lady Longstow. When Annabel enters the room, Finn is reminded of his instant attraction. However, he's here to find out about Richard. He asks Lady Longstow about her evening with his brother, and she refuses to confirm or deny anything about the evening, as he seems to already have his mind made up about what transpired between the two of them. However, she was as surprised by his death as the next person. Finn does not believe that a woman of her reputation did nothing but dance with Richard at a ball, so he basically accuses her of deception. That earns him a very frosty lady and a kick out the door. He really buggered that one. Not to mention, if she had never been with Richard, could he have pursued her in his own right? And was that maybe the real reason he had called on her? Annabelle, for her part, initially wants nothing to do with Finn, but then is reminded that he is a duke and she has been struggling to unearth a secret since the death of her late husband. She could really use a powerful duke to smooth her way. So she finds her way to Finn's door with a proposition. To say that Finn is surprised when Annabelle shows up at his door is an understatement, but he is not one to let an opportunity slip away. Annabelle is there to ask him for help in ascertaining the location of her daughter. She had only ever had this one child, and it was clear from the onset that her daughter would never have a normal life. She did not progress as a normal child would, and while Annabelle would have been happy to care for her for the rest of her life, her husband did not want to stain the family name with an aberration. So he took the child from Annabelle when Theodosia was only two, and withheld her location from Annabelle even after his death. Annabelle presents her case to Finn and even offers payment, if not monetary, maybe some other arrangement. Surprising her, Finn tells her that no payment is required. Quote, as much as I like the direction you are taking long, I must ask what the hell you are doing. She looked up at him from under her lashes as her hand moved to remove the next pin. God, yes, he wanted that pin gone. I'm undressing Maine. Thank God. Take it all off, he wanted to say. Instead, he said, I see that, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, but do stop. Stop? 
She frowned at him. Don't make me say it again. I don't know if I can manage. She gave him an uncertain smile. You don't want me to take my dress off? Of course I want you to take your dress off. What did she take him for? He very much wanted her to take her dress off. But I don't want you to disrobe like this. So Finn decides he will help her because he wants to, and completely focuses on where to start looking for the information on her daughter's whereabouts. They decide to go to Sealed House, where the current Earl's family lives. He is underage, so his mother, Lady Wavenwell, has domain over the house and Annabelle's late husband's papers. At first, Annabelle does not wish to make the journey with Finn. It would be unseemly, and also she has terrible memories of the house and does not wish to return. However, she concedes to go with him because it will make introductions smoother if she is there. So arrangements are made, and they head out to Sealed House. On the way to their destination, they pause for a leg stretch and to meet Finn's valet Reynolds, who has ridden ahead to make lodging arrangements. During that pause, Annabelle and Finn have an exchange. He had made it seem that the journey to Sealed House was helpful to him for estate business, but that was a lie. He just wanted to help, and Annabelle would not believe that it was just an altruistic gesture. Quote, I've made no secret that I'm attracted to you. It's hardly a crime to wish to spend time with a beautiful woman. She looked at him as though he were a new species. I am old enough to be your mother. You would have been a very young mother. Regardless, what difference does age make? I am of age, and you would be beautiful at any age. To prove that he is no child, Finn reaches over and kisses Annabelle. She does not push away, so he deepens the kiss. Eventually, Finn brings it to an end, and while it ends the debate on whether or not he was a child, Annabelle tells him that this is all that there can be between them. While this is happening, Mrs. Slightly, who had stepped out of the carriage due to all the sexual tension, makes the acquaintance of Reynolds, the valet. He is a very handsome man and treats her the way a gentleman should treat a lady. They get their flirt on and become a very nice sub-romance to the main romance. Yes. The group carries on and eventually arrive at the inn. Finn and Annabelle are having dinner when a fire breaks out in the main public room. Finn goes upstairs to help get the guests out while Annabelle is told to leave. She helps organize a bucket line, but then must wait for Finn. While helping clear the room, Finn feels something strike him in the head. Luckily, the innkeeper was able to grab him and they make it out of the fire, but now Finn has a splitting headache and is bleeding. While they await a doctor, Annabelle and Finn learn more about each other and reestablish the attraction between them. Quote, Annabelle, the Countess of Longstow, was the woman he wanted, now, forever. The next day, they are on the move again, despite Finn's continued headache. They make it to Sealed House, and immediately Finn can see that he will need all his famed negotiating skills with Lady Wavenwell. She's a bit of a harpy. They do succeed in getting an invitation to call back the next day. That night, Annabelle invites Finn to her room. Of course, she gets impatient and goes to his room instead. Quote, she wanted him to take her hand again. She needed to touch him. For the comfort, yes, but also because she liked his touch. He had said he thought she needed a lover. He might be right. Until she had spent time with him, she hadn't realized how much she craved touch and affection. Every time his arm brushed against her, or his foot nudged hers, or he took her hand in his, she wanted more. However, while we do get some undressing and kissing, we don't get an encounter here. Finn wants Annabelle to bring down her shields and feel free to be herself. She tries, but there is still a lot of trauma from her late husband, and she ends up going back to her room that night. 
The next morning, they go back to Sealed House. Annabelle is given access to her late husband's papers. She has to fight her own fears to get started, though. The library is exactly the same as when he was alive. It even still smells like him. She knows she only has a limited time, though, so fights her fears to get through the papers because finding Theodosia is the priority. For his part, Finn is asked to entertain Lady Wavenwell's daughter. She will be coming out next season, and an association with the Duke will be beneficial. The girl, though, asks Finn to come outside and help her liberate her rabbit who is destined for stew. While they are looking at the hutch, there is a gunshot that just misses Finn. Annabelle hears the gunshot and comes running out. After it is determined that everyone is okay, they take their leave with hope to come back the next day. On the way home, things get steamy in the carriage. Annabelle suggests that maybe the shot was destined for Finn, that maybe his brothers did not die in an accident. But Finn is not really listening to that. Instead, he's listening to the jealousy in Annabelle's voice when she asks why he went outside with Lady Wavenwell's daughter. This leads to kissing and finally to touching. Finn puts Annabelle in charge. He won't do anything unless Annabelle asks for it. She is so close to that elusive orgasm, something she hasn't been able to reach after the traumatic nature of bedsport with her husband. Yet they arrive at the inn too soon. But that does not mean they do not have the evening. <laughs> <laughs> Annabelle arrives at Finn's door after dinner. Annabelle tells him her history with her husband, with her lovers. She, while she may have the moniker The Wanton Widow, she has not actually had a lover in 10 years. And that is rectified when we get Encounter 2 and 3, where working together, they are both orgasmic. The following morning, they are allowed back to Sealed House, but not for long. Fortunately, Annabelle is able to ascertain the location of her daughter. They decide to head there directly after leaving Sealed House for the last time. They may also have uh, left Sealed House with an extra passenger in the form of Twitchy, the liberated rabbit. <laughs> Annabelle is rightfully very nervous on the journey toward her daughter. So Finn sets out to distract her. And if you can guess, it's a very steamy distraction. Quote, she held him afterward as though he were the one who needed comforting, as though he were the one about to meet a long-lost child. And yet he put his head on her shoulder and welcomed her caresses. He feared the closer they came to finding Theodosia, the closer he was to losing Annabelle. They arrive at an inn, and it is too late to see her daughter that night, but arrangements are made for Annabelle to see her daughter the next day. This is the first time she will ever meet her grown daughter. And although 20, Theodosia is very childlike and does not hear well, nor can she read. She does, however, have a good friend and has been living in a sanitarium that is actually helping and not hurting her. Annabelle is so overjoyed to see her. Sadly, though, the doctor tells her that Theodosia's heart is not strong and she may only have a year or so left to live. Annabelle had originally hoped to take her back to London with her, but instead realizes that she will have to move closer to her daughter so she can spend as much time with her as she can. While she is meeting her daughter, Finn is told that there's actually someone at the sanitarium there to see him. 
and it turns out it is his brother-in-law, John. He tells Finn that he's there to take him home, that Finn needs to stop his relationship with Annabelle and come home and marry a girl who can give him heirs, because his mother says so. Finn, in response, tells him that he's a grown man who can make his own choices. When they get back to the inn, Annabelle breaks things off with Finn. His job is to marry and sire heirs for the dukedom. She is pushing 50 and cannot provide that for him. She is planning to stay in Berkshire with her daughter, and it would not make sense for him to do the same. He needs to manage the estates. Quote, The words were clear, her meaning was clear, but he couldn't seem to wrap his head around them. He winced, anticipating the punch. But he would have her speak plainly. What are you saying, Annabelle? She looked him directly in the face, her bright blue eyes clear and steadfast. I'm saying goodbye. Back at the inn, Annabelle gives Meg... Mrs. Slightly, the news, and she goes to Reynolds to say goodbye to him, but he asks her to marry him instead. However, the two are interrupted when Finn returns to his room, so Reynolds and Meg quickly hide in his dressing room. They are making plans to sneak Meg out when Annabelle arrives at the door. Finn is hoping she has changed her mind and goes about trying to persuade her, even declaring his love. But then they are interrupted by another knock on the door from his brother-in-law, John Clare. Finn tells Annabelle to go into the dressing room while he deals with him. So Annabelle is shocked in the dressing room. And so Annabelle is shocked to see the dressing room so full. But then everyone realizes that Mr. Clare has a pistol and is planning to use it on Finn. It does turn out that those accidents that killed all the previous Dukes, yeah, not accidents. John Clare plans to have his adopted son take over the dukedom. Turns out he thinks all of Finn's brothers did not deserve it. It should have been his, but since he cannot legally have the dukedom, it can at least go to his ward. However, Reynolds comes to the rescue and rushes out at Clare. He is shot in the process, but it gives Finn enough time to get the pistol away from him and subdue him. A surgeon is called and Annabelle is doing her best to comfort Meg and Finn. In the end, Reynolds survives, Meg agrees to marry him, and Finn and Annabelle reconcile. Nothing like the prospect of death to make people get over themselves. Quote, She went to him, wrapping her arms about his body, which was stiff from surprise. I do love you, Finn. I do want to be your wife. That is, if you'll have me. He started violently, like a dead man reanimated. If I'll have you, Annabelle, the only question ever was whether you'd have me. He twirled her around, barely keeping her feet from hitting the edge of the bed. Annabelle, I love you. You'll marry me. He looked down at her, concern furrowing his brow. I'll marry you. Oh, so very cute. And we don't have an epilogue in this one, but we have something that we have actually in almost every book of this series, which is that the last chapter is featuring the hero of the next book and giving you a little bit of interest about them. So no epilogue, but definitely made me want to read the next book. However, we're here to talk about this book. So shall we first adjourn to the parlor? We shall. We 
we have a short and sweet parlor for you all today. Just a reminder that if you'd like to find us out on the internet on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at T as in Tom, N as in Nancy Strumpets, Facebook slash TN Strumpets, and YouTube by searching our name. And if you're listening to us on YouTube, now is a great time to click that thumbs up and hit subscribe before you forget. Liking and commenting on our videos and subscribing to our channel is a really wonderful way to let us know that you like what we're doing. And another way to let us know you like what you're doing is to leave us a review, uh, perhaps on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you can review us. Reviews really help other people find the podcast. And we so appreciate you taking the time to do that. We've gotten some really nice reviews recently, and we always get a little ping when there's a new one. And it's just, it's Sometimes it feels like we're shouting out into a void. And so every time you get a little review and just like a little piece of information from one of our listeners, it's really special to us and it just means a lot. We also wanted to mention that we include links to all the books we talk about each episode in the show notes of our podcast and on our blog. If you purchase a book through those links, we get a teeny tiny portion of that sale. (laughs) And so that's another way you can help support us. But if you're buying your books through an indie bookstore instead, then we in turn are proud to be supporting that sale. (laughs) Yes. Um, And finally, if you want to take a look also at our website, that's romancepod.com. We don't talk about it much other than to say that's a great place to go subscribe to our email list, but it's got all sorts of stuff about us, um, blog posts, interesting tidbits of information, and uh, it's kind of fun to look at. So take a look. Hello, listeners. I'm Shar. And I'm Kelly. And together we host Drinking and Screaming, a queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. We're an approachable show for horror fans and scaredy cats alike, with each episode featuring a unique and in-depth discussion on a different horror film. From classics like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Spoilers, he's an awful human being. And The Exorcist. That famous puke was made with pea soup. To modern films like Hereditary. Where we spoke with Charlie herself, actress Millie Shapiro. And host. We interviewed the full cast. You'll be sure to have a great time and maybe learn something new. And we're a film podcast that isn't just a bunch of bearded white men. Who knew? Drinking and Screaming has four full seasons out now wherever podcasts are found. And remember, always scream responsibly. All right, now, Zoe, let's talk about this book. I know you've got very strong feelings for it. I do. And so I had, I was really excited because I, this is the second book in the series that I read. So I read the book that comes, I think, before this book. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's the best book I've read in 2021. And then I read this book and I said, well, no, no, now this book is the best book I've read in 2021. Spoilers for my opinions here. However, um, then I've gone back and read pretty much the entire series, uh, and I have some comments about that later. But, um, you know, so I there were a lot of reasons that I really wanted to bring this book onto the podcast and shout about it from the rooftops. But I really like what this series is doing. Like, I think there's a lot of really commendable things about the way that Shanna Gallen is approaching the series and building her world. And so I think, like... A lot of the things that we talk about on the podcast about wanting to see in contemporarily written historical romance novels are in these books. 
Mm-hmm. Like there's so many different perspectives, characters, backgrounds, little moments of things. And again, I get a little bit more from reading almost the whole series, but I just sort of like got that even within the first and then the second books that I read. And I was like, I see what she's doing here. It's fabulous. I don't know why more people aren't talking about this series. However, I suggested this book, you know, for the the podcast. And I know you had a little bit of a hard time getting into it. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Yes. So for me, I had a hard time getting into it. It didn't like grab me on the first page. And to be fair, I got like even halfway through it and stopped and didn't pick it up again for like almost a week and a half. Wow. (laughs) But I didn't read another book in that week and a half either. I just like didn't do anything in that week and a half. Um, However, once then it kind of got to the exciting things, then there was more happening. I could get into it. I will say I did like the characters. I liked the conversation. I thought it was a bit more of a straightforward romance, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Like it, it didn't have a bunch of running around themes. Um, mm-hmm. However, I think for me, reading the book, I think I loved the sub romance better than the main romance almost. Yeah, I think I just found that more dynamic and it grabbed my attention more. That's so funny, but wonderful. Yeah. And so the sub romance is Mrs. Slightly, Meg, is like she's a dwarf. Yep. And so like she's was lived in a circus previously and like was obviously very like used to men treating her like an anomaly or an aberration and just like getting like the thrill of just doing so like being with someone different versus Reynolds is instantly attracted to her for her. Like he thinks she's not only pretty, but he thinks that her personality is just so fun and so lively. And he, and she is struck by the fact that he willingly is like taken to her defense when a doctor's like, I want to study you for studying purposes. You know, Mm -hmm. I've never met someone like you. And Reynolds literally punches him in the face and she's like, oh my gosh, my hero, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And he just makes it very clear that he's just attracted to her and he's not trying to push her for more than anything else. And I just like, I thought that whole romance. I was more intrigued by that romance than the actual one that the book was about personally. That's great. I mean, I think you're a little wild for not loving Finn and Annabelle like I do. <laughs> but okay. hey, to each their own. I'll just, I'll uh, rap so exotic about them. Or uh, yeah. Uh, anyhow, I will gush about them some more in a little bit, but, and why I think it's so good, but I want to address what you said about, you know, um, so Meg is a dwarf and what's really interesting is it's not, a hundred percent clear until about three quarters of the way through the book. She is she is introduced as diminutive. Uh, you you find out pieces that she was in a circus, you know. So then you start. She, she refers to herself as like an aberration. So there there are things that you slowly learn, and then then when they meet that doctor who wants to, um, look, you know, study her for science, he says, you know, blatantly like, "Are you a dwarf?" And she goes like, "Yeah." Duh. Like, hello. (laughs) Um, But I love that kind of about her because you get to know her as her and you don't let the fact that she is a dwarf be the first thing you know about her. You know that Mm -hmm. she's short. You know that she's a little different. But like the people in her life that you know, which is 
the Countess, Finn, and then eventually Reynolds don't just see her as that first, and neither do you as the reader. And that is really interesting, I think, and well done. I like that so much more um, that you're kind of forming your own thoughts and opinions until, and then you get all the facts and you're like, oh, I was right. And anyhow, and also you kind of learn, you have her and you learn, uh, the countess's butler also has like a limp and he has a cane and um he's crotchety his name is even crotchet i think yeah but, it is <laughs> but uh slightly in crotchet anyhow it's uh but she makes jokes about her name later um but uh those are the countess's you know main servants that you meet and so you kind of learn right right away like she has the sobriquet of the the wanton widow and society thinks of her as this like you know loose woman but it the moment that you take a second to look into her life which isn't that hard to do her housekeeper and her butler are not what you would expect right you know and they're people who maybe need a, a Someone who has a little bit more of a, uh, you know, who who overlooks stereotypes. And she does that because of her daughter, right? And we've learned throughout the story that her daughter was born with uh, what they call like mental deficiencies. And I think she's describing Down syndrome. That's what I thought too. It sounded like she was a child that had Downs in some way. Yeah. And though I think one thing that I really – so the Survivors series is about men who were basically in a suicide squad who were doing crazy missions. They were all considered expendable um, because they were, you know, like Phineas, a fifth son um, or just someone who was unattached or not important and um, they would do crazy daring things. And so only 12 of them came back. Now, when – I found this book because I was looking for disability representation in Regency romance. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say at all that like people who have war injuries or PTSD aren't disability, but I, I'm always looking for that, but also people that are born with a disability, you know, or have it come through to them maybe in a slightly less uh, obvious, for lack of a better term, way than war. Yes. And I will say I did like that this book, I did like immediately that, you know, her daughter, you know, they said had mental deficiencies at birth and that's why she was taken away from her. In fact, none of the ton even knows she's alive. And, you know, I liked that as the plot point because I felt that was such like a true thing and something that like 100% did happen. You yeah. know, and so to actually discuss it in a book and just bring acknowledgement to the fact that we live in a world where there's people of all types who are out there just trying to live a life. Yeah. And I mean, and the handling of that, like in the beginning, you know, she has this, she has this kind of like one track mind, get my daughter back. And then as it actually gets closer, cause she's literally, literally, you know, hasn't seen her in 18 years. The real the reality of that comes onto her. At first, it's like, you know, the top level is she's going to hate me, and then the scarier level comes in, and she starts thinking, she might not even know who I am, you mm -hmm. know, and is she, you know, they never even really go into is she alive. They always think she's alive. Um, yeah, that but, was never really a question. They seem to know that, you know, she's like, I know she's alive. You know, that wasn't yeah. a question, but it is. It's very much, you know. 
as she gets closer, will she even know who I am? Like, I have such clear memories of her, but obviously a two-year-old doesn't have much memory at all, especially not a two-year-old, you know, who isn't at the same developmental level as, you know, most other children. And I will say I loved the scene where she meets her daughter. Yep. And they tell her that her daughter has a friend and her friend is someone who fell off her horse at the age of 16 and had severe brain damage and was brought to the sanitarium because obviously the brain damage was permanent. And so the two of them have developed a super close friendship and just the realities of I can't just sweep my daughter home and live happily ever after with her at home and everything is going to be fine. She's like, my daughter has this life here. She has a friend here. I can't disrupt that. And yeah. and she real like that is such a great scene and just mm-hmm. the way that that's handled and like the the kind of realization as it comes to Annabelle and and also kind of her going, okay. Well, then I will change my plans to do whatever mm-hmm. I can to spend as much time with her. You know, like I won't uproot her life. I'll uproot mine. Because that's, yeah. you know, I feel like that's what kind of being a mother is all about. And 100%. so it was really, it was really a great scene. I agree. And I did just like, as I mentioned in our history fact, I like the fact that the doctors and the nurses weren't terrible people, you know? And it's funny because you get the doctor and the doctor's name is Dr. Poppenbach. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a great name. And in fact, and there's a great scene in the book where Finn's like, it's Dr. Poppenbach. And Annabelle's like, you're not serious. He's like, oh, no, that's his actual name. Don't worry. Um, I'm not making fun. It's true. But the fact that you know, he takes her aside and tells her, like, you know, they were given clear instructions to not only not reach out to her about her daughter, but also to turn her away should she ever show up. Like, those were the Earl's instructions to her aunt for Annabelle with the doctor. Mm-hmm. But also just his ability to see past that. And obviously, it's like the late Earl. And so many of our books are like, no, you're turned away because the Earl's wishes supersede yours as the woman. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. It was very much like, here's the situation. And the doctor was like, I want to shoot it to you straight. Can I do that? And Annabelle's like, yeah, shoot it to me straight. What do I need to know? Yeah. And it was so it it doesn't it really took like a lot of kind of heavy themes and put them in a really I would say like funny, joyful book. And I think that what the the re- the way it was able to be executed like that was because of the dialogue between Finn and Annabelle. They were mm-hmm. open and honest with each other like all the time. They have their one little moment of like I can no longer be with you and then like yeah. <laughs> the next morning like then I I got mad at the book at that point and I put it down and I was like ah, I can't believe it. And then I came back like later that day and picked it up and it was like the next morning (laughs) they like talked to each other again and so I was like okay like it literally the next chapter it moves on and they kind Mm -hmm. of keep going like you know the the story continues pretty quickly um but I think their dialogue is just so funny and they're so honest with their conversation with each other and they're like so just like silly and Finn is just such a sweetheart like he's such (laughs) I will say that it's not that I, you know, and I think we can slowly start getting into our characters here. And I will say I didn't dislike either of the characters. It wasn't a general dislike. I think it was I just wasn't in love with them. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. I wasn't like 
blown away by either of them. But I did like, I mean, I'm always for open and honest conversation. And that is something they definitely did in spades, like from the beginning. In fact, Finn pushed for it. He's like, whoa, 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 just be honest with me. Shoot me straight. Like, tell me what you need me to do. And she's like, how am I supposed to trust that you're actually going to do this? He's like, because I'm telling you I will. Yeah. I don't like, I don't know what other thing you need me to do for you here. There was a great thing when he, she was like, she was like, how can I, I can't remember what exactly what it was. I, I think I have it highlighted somewhere, but it was something like, well, how can I be sure that, you know, you'll X, Y, Z. And he was like, I don't know yet. Like, I don't know how to prove to you that you can trust me, but I will, I will think on that and see if there's a way, see if I can find a way. You know, because mm-hmm. it wasn't like, oh, I will show you with my actions. But he was like, I don't know what actions will will do that, but I want to find a way. So give me some time. And I was like, that is like so like normal and honest and not just like, I am hero. So, you know, hear me hero. <laughs> yeah. And I will say too, and one benefit to Finn, I think we can start talking about our like mm-hmm. of Finn here. Um, he... I loved how he recognized that she had a lot of trauma from her past, even if, you know, and a lot of the time he didn't actually talk with her about said trauma, but he recognized it and so made her like the driving force. You know, it wasn't like he immediately took that kiss to the next level and started running a hand up the skirt. Like he was happy to just let the kiss be the kiss. And then and he backed himself away from it. You Mm -hmm. know, he didn't try to push further. And any time it was like and then especially once he did want to go further, it was do you want me to do this? What do you want me to do? What do you want to take out of this interaction? And putting her in that driver's seat without being forceful about it. Yeah, it was sexy. It wasn't it wasn't like, you know, over the top like it, you know, we we've talked about this before. Consent is sexy, but also sometimes writing consent on the page can just feel like it's there for the modern viewer, you know? Um mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like that at all. It felt like there were two people like who really understood each other. And one of them was trying really hard to, you know, to let go of some things. And the other person knew that. And so that's why like he was just really in tune to always being like, this is what you need. I mean, the other thing to mention is that Finn's skill in the suicide troop was negotiations. So it makes so although they don't do a like they don't need his negotiating skill that much, they're at Lady Wavenwells for a day and a half. But um, I think it's just in his whole demeanor, and you see that as him as a character, right? Like like you just said, he recognizes what she needs to thrive, and then you know kind of puts himself in that role of um, tell me what you need because that will give you the power and that will make you feel like you have ownership in this moment, which before you never felt like you had any ownership of anything, even your own body. So I think like, I think that he just is a really um, empathetic, astute person. And yeah, I really liked him. But what did you think about Finn? Um, I mean, I really did like him. And like I said, I don't have any negative feelings towards him. I really... I liked the scenes. I liked his honesty. I liked his honest pursuit. And, you know, in the fact that at the beginning, and 
also his self-realization. You know, he went in really fiery at the beginning and was like really kind of a jerk to her and literally was kicked out of the house. And he's like, well, that was dumb. (laughs) He was like, that was not how that was supposed to go. And he doesn't blame her. He's like, of course she reacted that way. I would do the same. (laughs) Like, I came in with the wrong tactics. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was really interesting to see, but then especially his change in demeanor when something does happen and also his honesty. Like, and that's why I put in that quote where he's saying, I don't want you to get undressed. I don't want payment like this. And she's confused. She's like, I want you. He's like, you don't, but that's okay. And she's like, but wait, don't you want me? He's like, he's like, she's like, you don't want me to take my clothes off. He's like, yeah, I want you to take your clothes off, but that's not what we're talking about here. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a cute scene. And to me, so that's why it's like crazy to me that you didn't get hooked from the beginning of the book. Because to me, from the beginning of this book, I was so into their banter. I was so into their conversation and their chemistry. And it just like, it was everything I was looking for. It's just different readers. (laughs) Different readers. And as, as I said, like, it just took me a minute to get into it. Once I got into it, it was good, but like it just took me a while. I do see – I know we were talking about our hero rating, mm-hmm. but I did see write a note about the writing, and I will say the writing was very good. I think so too. I think the writing is good. I like – I think it's a fast paced. I would say like – you know, we haven't talked about Shanna Gallen, so I wanted to I wanted to mention that the writing, right? Because I think the writing is like fast paced, great dialogue. Like you, we kind of mentioned simple and it's, it's a weird adjective to apply to her books, but I think straightforward also maybe is I would say I don't, I would say the writing was simple, but then I didn't like that word. But I think again, the answer is straightforward, very simple, like, like, like her characters, you know, and it was something I said to you because you're like, I love this book. I hope this synopsis isn't too short. It's like, no, I don't want to make it too short, but it's just very straightforward we're not running around we're not not having like puppets yeah it's not convoluted (laughs) we're not having puppets come flying out of a closet or you know random museum dusty beds for sex (laughs) we'll never let that one go will we (laughs) no never (laughs) but no i agree i think that the books are really approachable and easy to read i think that her prose isn't quite as like Stunning as maybe some of the authors that like, you know, have a bigger name in the genre, but I think she deserves a lot more acclaim than maybe she has at this point in time. Mm -hmm. However, I have kind of a feeling as to why, I don't know, I just have this like one nagging question in the back of my head, which is, do some people not give her books a try because of the covers? Have you seen the covers for these books? I did. They're very, they're very like young adult, child, one girl, big dress, almost animated looking. Yeah, like a little too airbrushed. The hair is always super not period and the dress is always super not period, which again, like a lot of Lisa Kleypas's covers kind of look like that. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not, but there's something to do with the font and it's just, it's a little like... I look at it and I don't I don't feel like the cover like equates to the the book that I just read, which is weird. I will say it too. So like the nice thing is I got it on my Kindle, which is black and white. So I never see like the colors on the cover. And I think that might be a good thing because I kind of already looked at it and I was like, oh, this cover, you know, which is terrible. We yeah. should not judge books by covers, but we no. all do. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, 
And I looked at it. I went to get some information on her online and I saw like what color the dress is supposed to be. And like, and I was like, oh God, eyes, what's, what's happening? <laughs> so she wears a dress of sunset uh, in one, it, when she goes to see the Duke and in that scene when she starts to undress. And I caught that the second time I read it. So uh. she is like, it is a dress that she is mentioned in the book. And I think that the other books have the same thing, but I'm just like, it's, it is, it's a little, they seem a little bit, I hate to use this word, but garish to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I don't feel like the cover is as good as the book is. And I wish, and like, there, there's something to do with the font of the name of the book, too. It's just like, I think it could be, I think it deserves, you know, a really good, I, I, I think it deserves a better cover. I just do. I, I agree with you. I think that's fair. Um, but we are going to circle back now to yep. our ratings because we've talked a lot about our hero, Finn. So let's get a rating for him. I think you should go first. What would you rate him? Me? Um, yeah, I'm just going to like, I, I feel bad doing it, but I'm going to give him it. like a seven. That's fair. Why? Just because what makes him a seven Again, to you? it's just because he didn't. He didn't grab my attention. You know, I have nothing against him. I like all the things he did. But for me, like like I said, I think if I had the full Reynolds Meg story, I would probably rate Reynolds higher. I don't know why. Like, <laughs> he just like, you know, just as far as like characters that speak to you. Like Fair enough. So. Fair. Um, to me, he's a 20. Like, I love, I mean, like, he's one of my favorite heroes. He's going down in the books as, like, one of my favorites. I mean, he's obviously a 10. That's as high as I can rate something. But I want to talk a little bit, just a quick second about why, which is that, like, I think he's funny. I think he's, you know, he doesn't care for convention. He helps those around him. And, like, he's just, he flies off the page to me. I love him. I love that he falls in love with this older woman and and, you know, thinks that she'd be beautiful at any age because he loves who she is inside and he's attracted to her and he's so open and honest about all those things. I love him so much. There are so many quotes by him that I just, I just love. So he's, he goes down in like my top five heroes list. <laughs> I love him that awesome. much. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Good for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and let's talk about Annabelle because we haven't managed to talk about her yet. We, we have gushed about Finn. I'll try to be a little faster, although maybe that's unfair to her. I think what the writer is trying to do with this character is awesome. I think that what she sets out to do is create like this complex woman who has a bad reputation and who isn't, you know, who who is kind of held down by her reputation, um, but obviously has a lot more to her character than that, which is the case of, a, you know, of a bad reputation. But I think like, like I talked about with the characterization of learning about her servants and the way she treats those around her. And like, there's one moment when she like tell is, is mad and upset about everything that's happened with her daughter. And she like snaps at Meg and tells Meg to get back in her place, you know? Yeah. And because Meg says like, it's not my place. And she's like, well, then maybe you should get back to your place. And then immediately she's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that, you know, like, I can't believe I just said that thing, you know? And, and, you know, she, she has dinner with Meg. She just, she does things that like aren't supposed, you people of her station aren't supposed to do. No. And I think that that's something that speaks to her. I think she is, I think she is a complex character. I think that, you know, you get the bits and pieces. She was married like really young, like really didn't even have a season, was just kind of like 
you're marrying an earl. Here you go. He was. Yeah. And she was dutiful and she tried her best, you know, and he was just a cruel SOB. And, you know, and then after he died, you know, she really was like, oh, I'm going to go seek enjoyment for the first time ever. And that's why she got her wanton widow moniker, even -hmm. though it wasn't that she did anything worse than anyone else. And in fact, was probably even more stayed than other people. She just chose wrong. You know, she chose her lovers incorrectly because they weren't discreet. And she wasn't as discreet because she'd been living under someone else's thumb for, you know, a really long time. Yeah. And so I think that it's really a poignant to say that she does have respect for other people and their situations in life. She, um, you know, seeing Meg and giving her the housekeeper job because like she's, they even say like, Mrs. Slightly didn't apply for the housekeeper job. She applied for a different job. And she was like, no, I'm going to make you the housekeeper because it's very clear that you are fully capable of doing that job. And in fact, like does it very well. So I think that and even with Finn, you know, she's not prejudiced against him. She should be more prejudiced towards men. But she does recognize that very quickly within her interactions with Finn, she should not be as prejudiced against him as she was at the onset. Yes. I mean, and there's also like, um, you know, the fact that she is a survivor of all this trauma and abuse and the way she kind of gets through it in the book, you know, you see her actually take on her hardships and kind of try to rise to them. And what's nice is that Finn is there to support her, but she is the one who, who does it for herself. Like she... Mm -hmm. She battles her demons with support and is able to, you know, rise from them. I think there's a nice scene where she's in the Duke's library and she says something. I'm trying to see if I can find it quickly. But um, when she's in the library about to look at the papers and she's having, uh, you know, a difficult time, the passage reads, Annabelle opened her eyes and glared at the room. Quietly, she said, you are not here. You cannot hurt me. You are in hell and I am still here. I'm alive. I will live my life. She said it again, and when the trembling left her body, she went back to the files. And it was like, that to me was like, oh, such a positive moment of like a survivor, um, you know, surviving. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just, I thought that there was a lot of really good about Annabelle. Um, Yeah. So I'm ready to rate her. How about you? I'm ready to rate her too. It's not fair, but I'm going to give Annabelle an eight. (gasps) I know. I didn't. I'm so surprised, Zoe. Actually. I did. I know. I really I am. <laughs> I, I didn't love her. Um, I loved what the author's trying to do with her. I would give the author a ten for that. You know, mm-hmm. but as but since we rate the characters as to like how we feel about them, yeah, I feel an eight about her. I think that she's not perfect for me. I don't see a lot of me in her. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 sorry, Annabelle, you got an eight. <laughs> it's okay. She's gonna be a seven for me, but that's kind of like how I feel in general. Yeah. Um, as I've mentioned, it just mm-hmm. again, like you said, all our ratings are subjective to just how we feel and how we relate to them. Do I like everything Annabelle did? Yes. Do I find really any fault with her? No. Would I like? But do I feel strongly about her? No. And that's for me why she's a seven. 
Fair enough. I have a quick question before we move on to our favorite quote. Do you think when you started this book that you were not in the mood to read? I think I might have, honestly. But that's what I mean is like, it took me a while to read this. Like I did start it. It didn't jump right off the page to me. And it might just be I was so prejudiced against the age gap thing. Like it could just be like, I just wasn't feeling that. You know what I mean? Like, and to be fair, as I read it, but as I read it, I didn't, like, as I read it, it just, I forgot there was an age gap between them. Like, it came up every now and again, but I just, like, I don't really see that age gap. And especially when I've read it where, like, the guy is so much older than the girl, like, again, like, I don't always see that age gap as, like, something I, like, consciously, like, am against. So, I don't know. It's so funny. I think maybe I just was, like, reading it off the bat and I just was, like, I don't know. And it could just be that I wasn't as – I don't know. There's just something about reading it. But again, like I said, I would fully acknowledge that I wasn't really in the mood to read when I read this book. And that may have played how I read it. So you that's, never know. That's totally fair. That's why I wanted to ask because I think that it's just – it's interesting. But regardless, do you have a favorite quote from this book? Zoe, why don't you go first with the favorite quote while I pull up my quotes that I highlighted? I highlighted so many things just in this second reading that I ended up loving, and I don't know which one to pick. So I'm going to try really hard to pick one. So this is somewhere in the middle. I think this is after she runs away from his room. Um, and I think it's a good um, a, a good just kind of example of their relationship. I wish I had could share 17, but um, anyhow, so she she – you know, comes to his room unbidden and he then ends up running away from his room uh, and uh, before they can, before they could get too far because she gets scared. So the quote says, she stared at him. You are apologizing to me. I'm trying. The man was impossible. (laughs) I invited you to my room, then came to yours, took off my clothes, kissed you, got in bed with you. And then when you kissed me, I told you to stop and ran away. What exactly do you think you have to apologize for? She says, whatever I did that made you want to leave. She sighed. She didn't know what to do with this man. He'd told her from the beginning that despite his age, he was no boy. He was a man. And she was beginning to think that in some ways he was older than she. So there were moments like that in the book where they just kind of had these like equalization moments where it kind of like took away the the need for age because you start to see these two people on the same level. And, and I really loved that. And there were just so many other really funny, cute quotes between the two of them. But Kelsey, do you have one? Uh, I think I put most of my favorite ones in the synopsis. Okay. Well, yeah. then I'm going to share one more because – uh, I have so many. How about that? I think that's totally fair. I agree, though. That was a really lovely moment where she's like, why are you apologizing? He's like, well, clearly I need to apologize because I didn't make you feel comfortable. And she's like, wait, what? <laughs> so here's like a, a good funny, a good little funny one. And it's it's, it's just the two of them, you know, chatting or whatever. And uh, it starts with Finn. He says, you can find your daughter and that's repayment enough. He sipped his tea. Why are you looking at me like that? Because this is either an elaborate scheme or you are simply too good to be true. He grinned. People do call me perfect Phineas. It annoys me at times, but if you want to call me that, I won't object. He winked. He really was too good. I am not fond of arrogance, but I find I can tolerate it in you. 
it's not arrogance if it's true. (laughs) Well, she said, rising from her chair, you certainly have grown accustomed to being a duke. His laughter followed her out of the room. That one's a good one, too. There's a lot of laughing in this book. I remember there is there was, a lot of laughing. There was one time where he, she laughed while they were like kissing, and he he kisses her throat because he liked this the feeling of laughter on his lips or something. And I remember that line, and I remember being like, "Oh, so sweet." Okay, anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> so steaminess rating and encounter counter. So we have like four encounters. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say, I found the encounters fairly steamy. I did too. I got a lot out of their chemistry in the book, which just like made this to me like a really nice hot cup of tea. Yeah. So for me, like I, I guess maybe that's what it is, is I didn't actually like, it wasn't until the moments right before the encounters that I really, I think, felt the sexual tension. You know, mm. I think, you know what, that might be what I was missing from this book is I love it when there's like instant sexual tension. And I don't think the writing really provided me that same sort of tension that I'm used to. Like it mm-hmm. was it was nice and the attraction was there and I didn't deny the attraction, but it wasn't like that like instant chemistry, you know, sort of thing. I think that was a little bit slower to build it kind of happened like once they kind of got on their journey and had their combined purpose together yeah because he's so i am attracted to you and she's so i am not a sexual creature anymore yeah (laughs) and that's yeah and i think that's totally it and i think that and i think that as you said like it's it's banter it's funny but it's not like you know Demi is sex talk, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think that once you get into the scenes, like I will say, like the tea gets hot there. Mm-hmm. It gets nice and hot. Um, yes. But again, like we said, consent is sexy. <laughs> yeah, it is very. All right. So our feminist recap. I mean, this is such a supporter. It is beyond a supporter. It is a hundred percent a supporter from Mrs. Slightly, aka Meg, to Annabelle. To, to her daughter Theodosia, to her daughter, and the friendship, and the sanitarium, and the nurses at the sanitarium—you know, like, well, and 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 she she does get to give a, a nice send off to Lady Wavenwell, which like she, she her send off to her is like, I hope your son isn't anything like his great uncle of her, which is her husband, her ex husband, yeah. which is actually like a great send off because it's it's not actually like mean to anybody except for her abuser (laughs) yeah no exactly and it's like and even though lady wavenwell like doesn't like her because of her wanton widow status or you know her moniker like she does let them stay she does realize the benefits she does let her look through the papers and even after she's like it's too dangerous to have you guys around because people are getting shot at you know she still lets them back yes I mean, and there's so many, that's like the little stuff. The big stuff is all the stuff we've already talked about. This is such a supporter. The world that Shanna Gallen has built with this whole Survivors series is so diverse. And I want to talk a little bit about that before we get into our final book rating. Because I just, you know, because I think it's important and it's why I love this series so much. And I sort of alluded to it in the beginning that like, you know, when it's war trauma or PTSD, you know, that's that almost feels like a subsection of disability rep. And it's very important and wonderful. And I love reading about it. So I was very surprised that the Survivor series is not all about 
necessarily like war trauma. So yes, some of the characters have war trauma. Um, in fact, they all do and they all admit to that, but they, a lot of them have other things. So the hero of the first book is very dyslexic. And Mm -hmm. that is why he was, he's a third son and he's counted out of like his family because they think that he's a dumb brute. And so he goes to war, you know? And so to me, that little moment of like, oh my gosh, these, like, these are people who already kind of have something they're struggling with. And then of course that has them end up in this thing and Anyhow, each of the characters are really unique. And the fact that she peppers this world consistently with different people. There's a line in this book where Mrs. Slightly has to pack uh, uh, the Countess's things from an inn. And she just complains about the fact that she's going to have to pack everything damp because she's been doing the laundry. And Mm -hmm. like, that's a peek into normal life that we often don't get with Regency historical romance, mm-hmm. you know? And so, like, that kind of view I really appreciate. In a lot of the books in this series, you get a sub-romance, just like you get with Reynolds and uh, Meg. And in at least one, if not two of the books, those sub-romances are of Black characters mm. and Black couples. And I loved them. I, I've read a lot of books and I can't remember if it's two or if it's one and I'm sorry, but like the dressmaker, Madame Renaud or Renaud or I, Renaud, I can't, I don't know. It's French. I can't say it. She is, is black and she gets a story. Um, and yeah, that, I think there's another novella I read with two black characters recently. So I think there's at least one. There's also two Portuguese women who have Mm -hmm. stories and there's just so many other interesting people. There's someone who loses their sight. There's someone who has, you know, facial burns. There's all sorts of really dynamic, interesting characters. I will say that that intrigued me because I know you really liked it and you said you'd gone on to read the rest of the series. So I did read like the blur, like the little synopsis blurbs, like the back of the book blurbs on every book in the series last night when I finished it. (laughs) And I will say I was intrigued. Like I really liked the idea of the one who'd like lost his sight. You know, that's the one I read before this. And it was the first. Well, it's actually the second book I read, but um, it's really really good it's yeah really good. and and then there was the one that at the end of this one they kind of tease you to is mm-hmm. um he you know married before but actually hasn't seen her and like you know seven they're estranged and now they have yes. to get back together and so you know that i think is really interesting so i will say i was definitely intrigued by the plot points of all the other books and i will probably pick up another one i will say i wasn't turned off by this i think good. that I think that she has a lot to offer. I really liked the things and I like the diversity of the plots, as we were saying. Like you said, there's a lot of diverse characters. There's a lot of like diversity in it. And I think the plots were all really interesting. They didn't seem the same. Like, no. And that's what I think I liked. And most of the characters, because they are third or fourth sons, aren't nobility. This is really, I think, one or two of the only people that end up being nobility at the end of it because they're all younger sons. So um, mm-hmm. you you just have a view of often a different part of London or Scotland. There's mm-hmm. one that actually is the – it's I think it's the Highlander's Excellent Adventure. It wasn't my yeah. favorite, but it was interesting because it was – absolutely two love stories at the same time. Well, they did say that I read in the synopsis, I was like, "There's this has two, this is a romance of two people? 
Like, yes. it's, a, it's a romance novel with two love stories in it that are both yeah. the prime stories. It was it was fascinating to read. Anyhow, um, so there's just been so many, like, interesting things. It has really gotten me on a reading kick. I love this series, and I want more people to know about it. Well, Zoe, I think we're doing a good job of supporting the series, but <laughs> we have to do our final book rating. Yes. So I'm going to surprise nobody and give this book a 10. I think that what, what she's trying <laughs> to do with this book and what she does with this book is so worth it. This book's only a couple hundred pages. It's like just over 200 pages. It's a pretty fast read. It's exciting. I It has dynamic characters. It brings a world and perspectives to life that I think that we're asking for all the time in our historical romance nowadays. And so I applaud it and I love it. And that's fair. And um, I'm going to give this book a 7.5 mm-hmm. because I did. I liked a lot of things about it. It did not speak to me to warrant an fair 8. Enough. I feel like an 8 or above, it has to speak to me on some level. And I did not quite get that with this book. However, am I disappointed I read it? No. I think it offered a lot. Well, I'm glad because if you were disappointed, we'd have words. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not like the last book where both of us were like, if I don't read this again, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I please don't make me read that one again. It just doesn't – it doesn't make me happy. This book makes me happy. And I'm really glad that, you know, it, you at least you were able to find something in it. And I know that you see all the, the things that I'm gushing about. It just didn't – it just didn't do it for you. And exactly. It so didn't I'm, resonate with me. And that's okay. Not every yeah. book does. Well, I I hope you do pick up another one in the series that just I, I totally recommend you pick up whichever one sounds the most interesting to you and go for it and see what happens because I've had so much fun reading this series. Yeah, I will say based on this one, I mean, I don't know, you can speak more to the others. I will say based on this one, this isn't a series I feel like I have to read from start to finish. I agree. You don't. I, I read this book. I actually, as I was reading, after I read this book, I went back and kind of jumped around the series and picked random books that seemed interesting to me. You know, sometimes the last chapter, like I said, is another person. And so I just had to read that other person's book immediately. But sometimes I I wanted a different character that would pop up in one and I would be like, wait a minute, wh- you know, where did, what happened with him? Because there's always another survivor that pops up in, in mm-hmm. each survivor's story, at least. And so... Um, It turns out, though, as I was doing that, I had read the first book in this series a long time ago when it came out. And Mm -hmm. I found the first book in this series to be not as strong as the rest of the series. I like the hero. Like I said, he is dyslexia and he's really interesting. The heroine is a little immature to me. So I just like it didn't resonate with me. And so I didn't continue. Or perhaps it was the first an only book at, out at the time because the first book was written in 2017 and she's written 10 so far. So mm. <laughs> that's a lot of books in the last that's a few lot of years. books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyhow, the point being, pick one up, read one. You, like there's so much exciting, cool stuff in this. Um, if you're interested to see some of my thoughts, I have done some reviews on some of them on Goodreads. Um, and so, yeah, there's some thoughts there, but yeah. Diversity in the Regency. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it was really fun to talk about this book. But Kelsey, what are we reading next time? Next time, we are going to be reading Slightly Scandalous, which is Bedouin Saga number three, because 
it just sounds really interesting. So we're going to read it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we said we were going to read A Bedouin Saga by Mary Balog, and we're excited to do that. And I can't wait because I know a lot of people really love it, and I've never read any Mary Balog. So neither have I. So we are going to get to it. We're going to hopefully have another author that we love because we love collecting new authors. Got to collect them all, Zoe. Gotta catch them all. <laughs> so thank you all so much for listening. Please, if you have questions for Julianne Long, submit those at bit.ly slash J-A-L questions. And join us next time as we read Slightly Scandalous by Mary Balog. And may all your ever afters end happily. Happily.